You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer where you can get access to exclusive b-roll episodes tv and book reviews movie reaction recordings commentary tracks and early access to podcast episodes again that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and uh here in a bit i'm gonna have an, a fun little announcement about patreon uh but uh before i get to that today on the show um, I'm going to be discussing I Sing the Body Electric, which is the 35th of the Twilight Zone, 35th episode. <laughs> I did not write episode of my notes. Uh, it's the 35th episode of the Twilight Zone's third season. And it originally aired on May 18th, 1962. Not only that, but it's also the 100th episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, which is awesome. It's a cool milestone and everything because of the way that I started this podcast, um, <laughs> with doubling up, uh, episode reviews in the first handful of episodes. And then plus having a bunch of, uh, extra episodes in the main like line of episodes. Uh, this is actually the 99th episode of anthology, which would have been, it would have been cool to have it line up, uh, with the episode count, but whatever, it's, it's still, it's still amazing that I've done this 99 times now, plus a variety of different bonus episodes and everything plus and and also <laughs> all like 500 or so patreon stuff anyway um so i'm gonna be re- reviewing i sing the body electric um and then i will be rounding out the episode with a brief review in non-spoilers um of science fiction theater season two episode two titled the long sleep which is available on youtube and daily motion as of this recording i'll have a link in the show notes uh where you can find that episode um but before i get into the reviews proper um i'm going to regale you with some um uh some stuff from the world of fiction and science where i uh this section of the podcast is where i basically talk about uh things that i've watched or consumed in terms of media um that's science fiction related or science fiction adjacent um so uh before i get to the actual like things, um, I do want to announce the first thing I'm going to bring up in this section is that I have, um, I've created a new Patreon tier on patreon.com slash obsessive viewer that is tailor made specifically for, um, anthology listeners. And what that means is that, um, basically Patreon, my, my Patreon is filled with countless stuff. It's over 500 or so episodes between B-roll episodes, immediate reactions, movie reviews, TV reviews, book reviews, all of these things, all, uh, through different tier levels. So for instance, if you pledge $1, you get access to 
um, early access to episodes plus B-roll episodes, which are basically just me and my friends when we record an episode of of a podcast. We kind of uh, we warm up by doing a kind of no holds barred um, uh, recording beforehand. That's just that's just B-roll stuff. Sometimes it sometimes it is movie and TV and and media related. Other times it's me complaining about work or <laughs> it's me uh, talking uh, talking about uh, like us sharing anecdotes basically. Um, then at the $2 level, you get TV and book and movie uh, reaction recordings. I've, I've done tons of different um, TV episode reviews on the $2 level, plus a bunch of stuff. And then the $5 level has more robust reviews and, uh, and, and commentary tracks and everything. And then the $10 level is just, they get monthly, uh, monthly, um, viewing stats and, um, and kind of first viewing rankings that I do each month and then audio test recordings and a whole bunch of stuff. So anyway, it's a cascading effect. So like $10 patrons get access to everything. $5 patrons get access to everything from the five, uh, from the $1, $2 and $5 one, $2 gets everything from the $1 and $2, so on and so forth. So, um, what I did though, was I created a new Patreon tier at the $4 level that is specifically tailor-made for anthology listeners. Because what I've done is I've taken everything that is on the one, two, and five dollar tiers, and I have basically put everything on those tiers that is related to science fiction, related to the Twilight Zone, related to anything to do with anthology, and put them all in that four dollar tier. So if you are interested in supporting the podcast and you don't want to be just overcome with all of these different like obsessive viewer stuff and tower junkie stuff and everything. And you just want a curated experience on the Patreon of just science fiction related stuff. Um, you can pledge the $4 per month to get access to everything science fiction related. And for example, uh, some of the stuff that I have on the uh, $4 science fiction level is uh, commentary tracks for a bunch of movies like Sunshine, Dune, The Matrix, and of course, my notes screwed up here, and I don't have like the rest of the list here, but um, the commentary tracks for science fiction stuff. Uh, and then I also have TV reactions, which are episode by episode reactions uh, recordings that vary, vary in terms of runtime. So they're either like maybe 30 minute recordings or 45 to in some cases an hour, hour and a half recording. Um, but I've reviewed TV, uh, episodes for the first season of foundation, uh, stranger things season four severance season one, which I still think is one of the best um, science fiction shows to come out in the last year. So definitely check that out, even if you don't pledge on Patreon. But uh, also episode by episode reviews of Dark, which is one of my favorite science fiction anythings, uh, has instantly become that. I put so much work into those dark reviews. Uh, but I basically, I go, I go full, 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 uh, full throttle on those like those run for an hour hour and a half and I'm um over halfway through the entire series so I'm I'm really excited to to dive into dark and and watch it all um, <laughs> and record and then I also got uh episode by episode reviews of the first season of for all mankind and I'm currently doing episode reviews of the last of us on HBO max so all of that and more is on patreon um but you can pledge four dollars per month um to get the science fiction um 
the science fiction part, um, the science fiction experience. Uh, so I don't know if you, if you're interested, go ahead and sign up. If not, that's fine. But also, um, I just really appreciate you guys listening to anything I do anyway. So, uh, but yeah, so check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, um, that $4 or whatever tier you choose. If you do choose to support me on Patreon, that is a recurring monthly payment to get access to that tier. And, um, I post for frequently on Patreon, but, uh, but that comes out immediately and then you get instant access. You'll get like a special RSS feed that will, uh, that you can just kind of copy and paste into, uh, whatever pod podcast app you're listening to this on and you'll get access to everything. So anyway, again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And the next part that I, the next thing I'm going to talk about in <laughs> from the world of fiction and science is that I recently saw knock at the cabin, uh, the new M night Shyamalan movie that is um currently in theaters it's based on the book cabin at the end of the world by paul tremblay i actually reviewed the uh, reviewed the movie on obsessive viewer last week and um i wanted to kind of highlight it here if you guys haven't seen it um i'm sure that you're probably aware that m night Shyamalan is he's he's a pretty polarizing filmmaker for sure but he also has this penchant for creating um creating art that seems very much in league with um with with the twilight zone like that kind of that kind of vibe basically so knock at the cabin was a pretty good a pretty good movie um a pretty good entry in in m night Shyamalan's filmography that's that's very very hit or miss but it is um it's pretty satisfying check out my review on obsessive viewer um but yeah so the last piece of information or news that I'm going to bring up for, for, from the world of fiction and science is something that really bothers me. <laughs> um, recently, like within the last couple of weeks or a week and a half, um, Paramount plus the streaming service is going through this whole thing where they're basically folding in, like they're going to, re- they're going to revamp it. They're going to do, um, Paramount plus with Showtime and they're going to combine the streaming services. I don't know exactly what they're going to do. And after this piece of news, I'm really just, I just, I, it, it bothers me so much. So, um, following in line with HBO Max's ridiculous trend of of upheaval of their streaming service and uh, and kind of just not understanding like the the audience or anything uh Paramount Plus has pulled a few things from its service and like a couple of them is like it's reality shows and that I, aren't on my radar at all ever but the big one that they did was they pulled Jordan Peele's uh Twilight Zone reboot from 2019 to 2020 they pulled that from the streaming service which is maddening because I I was a defender of that show I even if it, that doesn't even matter even if you don't even if you're not a fan of the show if you're if you weren't interested in seeing the show if you saw the show and you didn't like it that's fine you know everyone's entitled to their own opinion but for a streaming platform to take a to take a title that premiered on streaming that was streaming exclusive and then pull it from that streaming service for whatever reason is really, really, uh, it's bad. (laughs) It's bad for this era of TV content. And yes, it is airing on sci-fi. Uh, 
Um, and it does have, fortunately, it does have a physical media release. The season one Blu-ray and DVD is out, and season two has a more bare-bones DVD and Blu-ray release and everything. But it's still just really annoying because the long and short of it is even if you no matter what you think about about the twilight zone reboot if someone is browsing paramount plus is browsing the streaming service and sees like oh jordan peele twilight zone let's check it out and they find it they if whether they enjoy it or not doesn't matter but that could lead them to diving into the original series if they haven't already if they're if they're someone like me who did not grow up watching it and it's just it's i don't know it's it's really just annoying to me that streaming services are uh following this trend in in such a such a undignified way for their for their stuff like um uh heather ann campbell uh tweeted um retweeted retweeted it um the news and said well it's finally happened to a show that i worked on and she works in the industry, obviously. She she wrote um, a couple episodes of, of the Twilight Zone reboot, and she was on, in the writer's room, I believe. But it's really, that's what it all really comes down to for me, aside from people not being able to discover it or not being able to have the opportunity to form their opinion of it without buying the physical media or catching it on sci-fi um, or whatever. But the bottom line is that this show was created by a group of people like all art is created like like tv and film is a communal um experience in terms of art creation and everything so there are people who worked on this show who are i would assume are very proud of it and proud of the work that they did and to have streaming services just take that away take that take that down is just is is really um bothersome to me i i don't like it so anyway um I, as i said i am a defender of the twilight zone reboot so if you um if you if you want to check it out i do recommend checking out the the physical releases and everything but it's just it's uh it's it's annoying so anyway that is the downer of a of a uh, section for uh from the world of fiction and science that i'm going to go through here so let me go ahead and uh transition out of this and go into um to the episode proper and before i do that obviously once again check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer i've got a ton of stuff on there um whatever whatever tier you join um and the money goes to paying it goes toward the paying the fees to keep all of my podcasts running and everything. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's something I'm proud of. I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the podcast and I'm proud of, uh, the stuff that I put in, um, into the Patreon. So anyway, let's go in to, uh, the, I sing the body electric and, um, yeah. So let me just dive right in. Uh, first of all, what I knew before going into this episode, all I really knew was that it's the only Ray Bradbury written episode of the twilight zone. And, um, it was based, what I thought was that it was based on a short story of his called that I thought was called the electric grandmother. And then while I'm, while, while I was typing that, I thought like, or that was the title of a different adaptation of the story. I'm not sure. Um, but it, either way, I thought that it was about a robot grandmother and how the family reacts to it. And 
then I kind of wondered if maybe it was about the electric grandmother, um, the robot, um, not working correctly or, um, not capturing the actual essence of the grandmother it's presumably replacing. Um, I didn't know really anything about it, uh, but I did love the title and I felt that the title itself was pretty unique. And, um, yeah, so that's basically all I knew going into it. And I did forget to mention that, uh, at the top, uh, in the, uh, from the world of fiction and science that I'm going to be a guest on, Brandon Cruz's uh, submitted for your approval podcast in the coming weeks. Um, he's he's finally bringing that podcast back. I'm so excited because I love his work on that, and I'm I really like chatting with him about uh, the Twilight Zone and everything. So I'm going to be a guest in uh, in his episode. Uh, I think we're going to be talking about to serve man. So uh, I'll post that all across social media and I'll say it on the podcast and everything, uh, when, when the time comes. So, uh, yeah, so check it out. Uh, Go ahead and subscribe to Brandon's podcast. It's fantastic. So, okay. Now that I have said what I knew before going into, I sing the body electric. Let me go ahead and read the plot summary of the episode, courtesy of the twilight zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Graham's jr. Um, and as always, I'm going to be spoiling the entirety of the episode from here here on out. So, um, so if you haven't seen the episode, go watch it, um, wherever you watch it. I actually forgot to mention also that I, I rage, I rage unsubscribed to, uh, Paramount plus. Cause I just like, as a, as a point of principle, I'm just like, I don't want to support them if the, if, if they're going to just delete stuff willy-nilly and everything. So I've been watching these episodes now um, via DVD and everything. And I had this moment today where I was like, well, I got to rewatch I Sing the Body Electric. And like, I had a moment where I was like, okay, do, do, do I, do I uh, want to compromise my, (laughs) my rage quitting of Paramount Plus and sign back up, or do I want to get up and get the, get the DVD to put into the, to my PlayStation? Um, I did not re-sign up. I'm not going to, but anyway, anyway, that's all whatever. So here we go. My, uh, the plot summary, uh, courtesy of the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. When a loving family loses their mother, the children find it difficult to cope with the loss. Because of his work schedule, the widowed father is unable to spend enough time with the children. The solution comes in the form of a robot in the shape of an elderly grandmother, courtesy of I Sing the Body Electric, a company specializing in replacing lost loved ones with surrogate robots. The children choose the hair color, the eyes, the ears, and all the accessories, but Anne will not accept the grandmother as part of the family. Weeks and months pass, and Anne claims the family is only paying, playing make-believe with the robot. Running into the street, Anne almost becomes a victim of an accident, but the quick-thinking grandmother pushes Anne out of the way. Anne watches as the robot rises to her feet, unharmed by the truck. When the grandmother promises never to leave her like her mother, Anne accepts the motherly figure. Many years later, as the children are now grown up and moving out, the grandmother says her goodbyes to the children she came to love, ready to move on or to move to a new family that could use her help. Um, Okay, so a couple things about this plot summary. Um, I've noticed that I I adore Martin Graham's Jr.'s work, uh, his his book, uh, The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. It, I, I, I cannot create this podcast. I cannot produce this podcast without that as like my Bible for trivia and everything. But there are some times where 
the plot summary isn't quite accurate like here he says uh courtesy of i sing the body electric a company specializing in replacing lost loved ones with surrogate robots that's not fully accurate because the the company is um facsimile limited and i sing the body electric is the um is the slogan of it um but also there was another part that um yeah, it says her goodbyes to the children uh, she came to love, ready to move to a new family that could use her help. I think that really it's mostly that she's going back to facsimile limited, um, or that's mo- most of the possibility of it is her going back to it. So anyway, I don't know. Um, but n- nonetheless, that's the plot summary for Icing the Body Electric. So uh, this episode stars Josephine Hutchinson as Grandma. Uh, This was her only uh, appearance on The Twilight Zone. She did have a couple notable credits in her filmography that included uh, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest and uh, the classic Universal Monsters uh, movie Son of Frankenstein. And co-starring as Mr. Rogers is David White. This is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. We previously saw him in the season one episode, A World of Difference. And he also appeared in the Serling scripted Playhouse 90 story, The Velvet Alley in 1959. And he also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond titled Delusion in 1959. Uh, also, uh, appearing in this episode as the salesman is Vaughn Taylor. Um, I just realized like we have a lot of Alfred Hitchcock connections here. Uh, Vaughn Taylor played the salesman. This is his third of five Twilight Zone appearances. We previously saw him in Still Valley earlier this season. And next we'll see from him is in next season's episode, The Incredible World of Horace Ford. And he also appeared in a TV pilot that was co-written by Serling in uh, 1955, uh, a drama pilot called The Challenge that was uh, written, co-written by Serling. It was for an anthology show that was never sold to a network. So there's no way to find that anywhere, obviously, but uh, kind of an interesting bit of trivia. And Von Taylor also appeared in one episode of Tales of Tomorrow entitled The Search for the Flying Saucer and two episodes of The Outer Limits in season one's episode The Guests and in season two's Expanding Human. And finally, another very notable credit is that he appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, so yeah, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's awesome. Uh, appearing as Tom, uh, is Charles Herbert. This was his only episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, he did appear in the Playhouse 90 production of Requiem for a Heavyweight in 1956, which, which of course was written by Serling. And he also appeared in one episode of Science Fiction Theater in season two's episode, The Miracle Hour. And he appeared in two episodes of One Step Beyond, season one's epilogue, and season two's The Justice Tree. And finally, he had an uncredited role in one episode of The Outer Limits in season two. The episode was The Inheritors Part Two. And uh, also uh, appearing in this episode is Veronica Cartwright as Ann Rogers. Uh, This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, She also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in season two titled The Haunting. She was in four episodes of The X-Files. She played Nancy in 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But her most notable role for me is as Lambert in the movie Alien, which, again, is another one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, pretty awesome. 
And rounding out the cast, uh, was she also in The Birds? Um, let me check. Let me check because I'm pretty sure she was in The Birds. Um, let me do some vamping here. Uh, Veronica Cartwright. Um, but yeah, but anyway, this this cast is really good in terms of science fiction connections and uh, all that. Um, let me see. Notable. Yeah, she was in the, in the birds. I did not put that in my notes. Uh, she played Kathy in the birds in 1963. So let me bring back my, uh, notes that went away. Okay. And now, uh, to round out the cast, um, we have Dana Dillaway as Karen Rogers. This was her second of two Twilight Zone appearances. She previously appeared way back in season one in the episode One for the Angels, which quick shout out to my friend Victor Gamboa. That is his favorite episode of the Twilight Zone, and he is the host of the Outer Limits podcast. A uh, really good guy, really good show. Check that out uh, on wherever you find your podcasts. And writer for this episode was, of course, Ray Bradbury. This was, unfortunately, his only episode of The Twilight Zone. And he had kind of, obviously, he's, he, he is a very well-renowned, like, uh, science fiction author. Um, I hate to say this, but I have not read I don't believe I've read anything. Well, I read Fahrenheit 451 in high school. But other than that, I'm I'm woefully unfamiliar with Ray Bradbury's work. That's something that I'm actually going to be addressing and 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 uh, correcting. Oh, also Sound of Thunder. I really like the Sound of Thunder. But anyway, um so I'm going to be uh correcting that in in the months to come and I'm probably going to be posting on Patreon. Um, about that. Like I'm, I'm currently reading, uh, the Martian Chronicles. And then I think I'm also going to read some short story collections from him. So anyway, uh, uh, so there's some interesting feedback or interesting trivia about Ray Bradbury's kind of involvement with the Twilight Zone. So, um, through through multiple sources. Um, I also listened to Mark Sacree's commentary track on the DVD, but uh, Ray Bradbury overall had a negative experience with The Twilight Zone. Um, so to kind of go back, this is going to be kind of a very, very cliff notey version of, of his history with The Twilight Zone. But when the show initially began, or I think when Rod Serling was about to start the show, he sought out the guidance of Ray Bradbury. He reached out to him um, and Ray Bradbury just gave him, um, uh, gave him books, uh, including some of his own short story collections. Um, and, and kind of just said like, okay, these are, these are the works that you need to read and everything to kind of get your foot in the door with science fiction and everything. Um, and then he even pushed, I believe he even pushed Serling to hire like Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson. Um, and throughout the years, Ray Bradbury had submitted scripts, uh, several scripts, um, to the show, but this was the only one that was produced. Everything else was kind of passed up. And in fact, this episode, I Sing the Body Electric, was passed up uh, in when it was submitted in 1959. So it was one of the initial ones. Um, and this uh, kind of what's reported, and I think I, I think I read this in uh, Unlocking the Door to Television Classic, basically... Toward the end of season three, Serling was, or maybe this was from the commentary, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, toward the end of season three, Serling was starting to get a little bit fatigued and was trying to trying to get 
um, some good stories locked in and everything. So he would go through past submissions and he found this, he dusted it off and reworked it. Um, and in the interim or, or as a result, Ray Bradbury was uh, presumably pretty excited about it. He gathered his friends and family together to watch the episode when it aired. Um, and when he had submitted, maybe not when he had initially submitted this particular episode, but when he was in the process of submitting episodes to the show, he had basically gotten gotten the word of Rod Serling. Like his his word was that he would that nothing would be changed from the scripts. Like not a word would be changed from the scripts. Um, that was that was Serling's kind of ode or or his his oath to. Uh, Ray Bradbury. I don't know if that's because Bradbury was such a a massive uh, known entity in the world of science fiction. Like he's like the he's like the father of science fiction. With I think H. G. Wells being like the grandfather of science fiction, which also I'm reading the War of the Worlds as well, so I'm excited to talk about that on Patreon. But anyway, um, so. That was the oath that Serling made to Bradbury, and when the episode aired, unfortunately, due to time, there were a few minutes cut from the episode, and those happened to include the lines that were Bradbury's entire reason for writing this story and writing this episode. Um, I believe the line had to do with the grandmother explaining that she, as a machine, can give each child equal amounts of attention, whereas, you know, a human person can only give, can only divide their attention, um, so much across three, three kids that that's why the upbringing can be fraught with some kind of, uh, incompletion, I guess. So that was cut from, from the episode and that just fueled, uh, fueled a flame within Bradbury. Um, throughout the years, he and Serling would kind of, they, they didn't, they didn't talk much. I don't believe they didn't, they didn't speak much, but they would kind of volley, um, statements in magazines or in newspapers, in the press, kind of sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly referencing the other. So Bradbury had, kind of called out Serling at one point, I can't remember exactly what he said, but, um, and I don't have the quote readily available, but saying, basically saying that, you know, they ruined his story and everything. And then, uh, Serling kind of became over the years, he kind of, he was very, his, his volleys in this ongoing thing as, as I read them in, in unlocking the door, they were classic Serling because Serling seemed very, uh, obviously very well-spoken, very, um, very diplomatic with his, with his, his statements. So like he would, he, it came down to him saying that, uh, some like Bradbury is an, is an amazing, is an, is an amazing author, amazing writer for, you know, prose, but sometimes that doesn't, that doesn't really translate to like television, um, or film like a screenplay. So that was kind of his, his kind of diplomatic, but still kind of biting, um, kind of summation about the issues with Bradbury and I sing the body electric, but I, it is a bummer because Bradbury is such a massive name in science fiction that it, it does. I do wish that there was more Bradbury in, in the twilight zone, but alas, there is not. Um, and so the direct doors 
for this episode. There's two, James Sheldon and William Claxton, which I posted this on Instagram and it's so dumb, but basically when I saw when I saw the uh the names of the directors and everything, I had this I had this clip from The Simpsons playing in my head uh when oh, I saw them. A game of cat and mouse going, I'll come back. I'm seeing double here. Four crusties. Krusty! Oh, dang, dang! So just a dumb, like, like I'm seeing double here. Four directors. Um, because for context, in that, in that scene from The Simpsons, there are, uh, Homer is, uh, impersonating Krusty. Krusty comes in, so the gangster says, I'm seeing double here. Four, four Krusties. Anyway, so the two directors, the reason for it was that, um, it was due to the episode needing to be reshot, um, late in production. Uh, Buck Houghton said that, uh, on the, uh, so on the DVD, there is an interview with Mark Sacree and Buck Houghton, um, that can be watched or can be listened to as you watch the episode. But in that interview, Buck Houghton says that the reshoots were so extensive that it was, it was nearly like a full reshoot of the entire episode. I don't know how much of that is, is like completely accurate, but basically like the actress who played Aunt Nedra was recast and they reshot those scenes and they had to rework some things and, and shoot revision or revised scenes because the, the final product uh, upon the initial, um, the initial cut of it was unsatisfactory. Um, they couldn't, they couldn't make connections though in the plot, the way that, uh, as effortlessly as, as, um, as the script should have allowed them to. So they needed to shoot some revised scenes and, and tinker with them and get from point A to point B of the narrative. Um, yeah. And, and the episode kind of suffers quite a bit for that, I believe. Uh, but as far as James Sheldon and William Claxton, James Sheldon was the initial one, uh, to be, uh, to direct the episode. And this was his sixth of six. So his sixth and final, uh, Twilight Zone episode. Um, he previously, most recently we saw his work in Still Valley, um, earlier this season. And then basically when it came time or when the realization came that they needed to reshoot several scenes and shoot revised scenes and all of this, um, Sheldon just simply wasn't available anymore. And, uh, when it came to, came down to it, they just had to hire William Claxton, uh, to come in and, and cover, basically cover for Sheldon to, to reshoot the episode. And William Claxton, this was his also, uh, final episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, as a director. This is his fourth overall and final. And we previously saw his work in, uh, The Little People. So, uh, for an episode that it, it's so interesting to me that this episode has the name recognition, the big, big name recognition of Ray Bradbury, and it is fraught with so much behind the scenes tension and, um, and issues that it's really a bummer. That's one of the reasons why I, I really wish that Bradbury had written more or that they had, were able to get a better example from, uh, of Bradbury's talent in, uh, in the episode, because I think that the episode overall does suffer for the, uh, the, um, the kind of production issues that, that went on, um, behind the scenes and everything. So, um, all right. So that's the talent rundown. Let me go ahead and go into my review of, 
um, I sing the body electric. So we open on a house and it is the same house, same, same shot, same everything of that introduced the previous episode. Yes. Um, young man's fancy. Um, and I knew that going into this because I had read the trivia for young man's fancy when I covered it on the podcast, but, um, having now read and, and learned about the production issues, it's kind of fitting that they would reuse that same, that same shot, um, since the episode was heavily reshot and everything. Now I have no idea if that's actually the case. That's that, that that's why they did that. But I would assume, or I would assume there is definitely potential that there could be, uh, that there could have been a fair amount of, uh, hurried, like production, like deadlines that they needed to meet for this episode. So, um, possibly, possibly the case, possibly not, who knows? Um, so inside the house, we have three kids, two girls and one boy that are quietly, uh, standing on the staircase, um, overhearing two adults talk in the next room about their dead mother. And, uh, we hear, uh, who is later revealed to be Aunt Nedra, um, say that babysitters and nurses are not the same as parental care and that kids, the kids need someone consistent that can, that can take care of them. Um, and at this point I'm like, okay, so, okay, the mother or whoever has already died. That's interesting. Um, and then we hear Aunt Nedra say that Anne isn't handling it well, and she's going to continue, um, becoming more and more hostile. She's going to continue to not handle it well. And yeah, so then we hear Aunt Nedra say that it's been a year since their mother died and Anne has become hostile and everything. And I found that to be interesting that this episode um, is is immediately after Young Man's Fancy and both episodes open with the same shot of the house, the exterior of the house. And not only that, but both episodes take place one year after a mother has died. Um, I just found that to be kind of interesting. So the kids are Tom, Karen, and Anne, and Aunt Nedra is talking about them with their father, Mr. Rogers, who I don't believe he's given like a first name anywhere. But, um, anyway, so Aunt Nedra continues to say that Anne is going to get worse and going to continue to get worse. And then she goes up to the kids at the stairs. She's at the bottom of the stairs and tells them, uh, at least two of them that she tells Tom and Karen, since Anne went back upstairs, um, she tells them that she feels that the house is run poorly. And it's like, this is such a direct, like, I guess dig at, and maybe not dig at their father per se, but it's just like, it's so direct and it's so, um, it's so serious. Like, yeah, I think your house is being run poorly and, um, you guys, you deserve, you guys deserve, so much more than what your father, who is a widower, uh, can provide. And you guys are just poor, unhappy little dears. <laughs> and then she leaves. It's like, okay, that's, that's kind of severe. That's a bit severe. Um, to, uh, that's, that's a bit severe. Like I can understand her saying these things to, uh, to, to Mr. Rogers, assuming or presuming that she is, uh, his sister and not, like, uh, his, his, um, deceased wife's sister, but 
I, I can see the sibling, siblingry, siblingry, I don't know, <laughs> siblingness of that. But to, to kind of just speak that directly to the children is, is a little bit, a little bit crazy. So after Nedra leaves, uh, Mr. Rogers, or really Tom, uh, kind of breaks the ice and, or breaks the tension and says like, so Aunt Nedra wants us to be taken away from you, right? And, uh, their father just says like, well, you know, she just thinks that they're not being raised right. And she says that, uh, she says that he's too busy and the kids are all unhappy. And so at this point I'm like, okay, so he's going to hire a robot. He's going to get a robot to come in and replace the mother. Um, which I, <laughs> great deduction skills on my part. <laughs> so, uh, he kind of reiterates that he's too busy and that he needs to buy guidance for the children. He needs to figure out a way to buy, buy someone, buy, like buy the services of someone who can take better care of, of the children than what, you know, the real world allows. And that's when Tom runs upstairs. He brings down a modern science magazine and reads an ad um, saying, I sing the body electric. It's the motto of facsimile limited. And they, uh, like, oh, George is, George is the father's name, George Rogers. So George takes a look at the magazine and, uh, he reads it aloud, says that it's, uh, it's ideal for parents who work, who, uh, work long hours or worry about inadequate schools. Um, it's, they provide, a service that's an electro electronic data processing system, uh, basically in, in a robot, uh, woman, I think it's only, yeah, I, I believe it's only, uh, women. So I think that kind of, that kind of, uh, plays into a lot of the, um, that, that really plays into the, I don't know, nuclear family kind of, uh, societal norms of early sixties Americana. So I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting piece of history, I guess, since the world has changed, uh, a lot over the decades. Um, so, um, uh, it ends with, it ends with, um, the kind of the rest of, well, okay. So, so he continues reading the ad. It says it's a, uh, it's a woman built with precision. Um, and, Anne, who has come back downstairs, says that she, it doesn't sound like a good idea. It doesn't sound like something good, uh, that'll come. It doesn't sound like anything good will come from it. And then that's when we get Rod Serling's opening narration, which I will play right now. I sing the body electric. They make a fairly convincing pitch here. It doesn't seem possible, though, to find a woman who must be 10 times better than mother in order to seem half as good. Except, of course, in the Twilight Zone. So it's a nice brief narration. Um, I like the comment about it, about them making a convincing pitch. Something about that just seems just so, uh, just so, uh, I don't know, personable of Serling, I guess. Like, it just seems like it's an off the cuff kind of remark about it. I don't know. There's something, there's something just grounded about that for me. And I also like that he's just sitting at a desk, um, reading the magazine. It's just, it's a very kind of laid back, uh, opening narration and very brief as well. So when we come back, uh, from, from the opening narration, we see, uh, the kids and George are outside of facsimile limited. There's a storefront and, um, it reminds me a little bit, uh, like very vaguely of the beginning of the trade-ins, although it's not as beautiful as that, like that. I still love that opening shot of the trade-ins. Um, but, 
there's some really cool like future tech in this scene. Uh, the door kind of materialize, materializes and when they go through it, it disappears behind them and they're in this completely dark room with these lit up displays and then the salesman comes in and uh, turns the lights on and or turns the lights on or off or both. Um, and he says like he's just basically he's a little bit theatrical about it, but he says like, well, you know, just to show that we're serious, we're going to show you all the different like body parts and everything. And this this scene like this scene feels slightly out of place with the rest of the episode. Well, very out of place uh, in all honesty, because this is them going into basically like creating the the grandmother. And it feels that the moments where the salesman is just taking them to each display and showing them the different parts of the bodies uh, that can be created um, and, and customized and everything. Uh, he goes through like the eyeballs, the hair color, uh, the ears, the arms, the body, like the torso and everything. Um, that just has this element to it that feels like it is, it feels, it feels, it feels a lot like body horror, honestly. <laughs> like it feels very creepy to me. Like that is one element of, uh, of movies and TV that I can't, I can't really abide like body horror, the body horror genre. Um, like I, I try to watch as many movies as I can, uh, each year, last year, the movie, um, uh, crimes of the future by Cronenberg. I, I didn't, I, I decided not to watch that movie. <laughs> like it wasn't like a thing where, Oh, I just don't have time to see it or anything. It's just like, I made the decision not to watch that movie. Cause it just seemed, there's something about body horror that just does not work for me or, or makes me, makes me cringe in a very, very uncomfortable way. Um, and I got a little bit of vibes from that, uh, of that, from this segment where the salesman is going through all the different body parts and everything. So, um, so the kids are kind of excited about it. And, uh, the salesman says that, you know, these are just the bits and pieces. You can, you can take them and you can customize them any, any way you can. There's the chute that you put the pieces in that goes to the factory and then they create the, create the, uh, the robot. And he's like, are you guys, what are you guys looking for? Like a mother, grandmother? Like, how can I, how can I put you in a grandmother today? Um, and they, but they confirm that they are making a grandmother, which I think is interesting as a bit of grief or mourning because it's not like, it's not like they're creating a mother. It's not, it is a maternal figure, but since they have already, lost their mother, their actual, like the matriarch of the family. So recently it's interesting that they are making a grandmother to basically preside over the family and take care of them. And I also find that to be interesting because that kind of somewhat implies that, or maybe directly implies that they need, they need the guidance. They need the, they need the mother, the mother figure. They need the maternal, uh, mother figure in the house more than George needs, you know, a companion of his own. He, he does not, it's kind of a weird lopsided thing. And maybe this is a, maybe this is an example of the episode really not working as well as a cohesive piece of media because, or a cohesive narrative, because it is so focused on the children needing, needing someone in their life for guidance that 
by by extension, it just creates this idea that George is just too busy, too wrapped up. He's too disconnected. He's too much that, you know, that provider of the family that he can't he he's fit in that role. So there's nothing else aside from him needing to provide for his children uh, that needs to be done. And and that's something that I feel like is a, is a shame because otherwise it could be that he is hurting just as much from the loss of his wife and maybe he needs some someone in his life. But And I think that that, I think it's a misstep in the Twilight Zone because we've already had uh, some exploration of of men grieving uh the loss of 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 uh, maternal figures so i like the two standout examples are last the last episode young man's fancy a darker turn for that for sure but before that i've talked about it but um obviously since it's before that but um i've talked about it as uh the the father in uh long distance call um, him grieving his mother's death was something that stuck, stuck out to me when I watched it because it felt very much, um, out of the norm of conventional, like sixties television, um, in the kind of sixties culture that, you know, men, these, like these businessmen can't show emotion or anything. This, this, um, light, like the masculinity needs to be the forefront of that. And here I feel like this for, for as, uh, relatively progressive as the, as the show has been, this is a little bit of a step back in that regard because we get nothing with George. We, we really have nothing, nothing to latch onto in terms of George's whole, um, experience except for one scene at the end, which I'll talk about. But, um, but I wish that there was more to, uh, the family grieving as a whole and the family dealing with replacing their, the, the matriarch of the family with a robot grandmother rather than just being the experience of the children and their bond with the grandmother while George is like, Oh, Hey, cool. I'm going to buy us a new car. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah. So all that's to say that I found it interesting on my first viewing that the kids were the ones that were taking the lead on creating the grandmother. It's almost like it's a gift for them which is exactly what it is. So, um, so yeah, so the salesman references that or re- mentions that I sing the body electric is a, is, uh, is for, taken from Walt Whitman. Um, I forgot to look up the context of that, so I apologize, but, um, it is a reference to Walt Whitman's, um, poetry, I think. Um, but they, they go through, they, they pick and choose everything. Then they find the voice box. And I found that to be pretty interesting because, um, they use it to pick the tone of the, the tone of the grandmother's voice. And I found that to be so interesting, especially when you consider the, like, or when I consider the like body horror aspect of it, when seeing these disembodied like arms and ears and eyeballs and everything, then we get the voice box where they can, where they can figure out or they can choose what tone the grandmother is going to have. Um, in her voice in that first one, that very high pitched, um, I'm going to try to imitate it here. It's going to be a disaster, but, um, (laughs) the very high pitched, I sing the body electric. It sounds like an evil witch. Like it sounds like an actual like witch sound. And it's kind of horrifying to me when I'm already in this kind of headspace with, um, it being about, uh, like possibly body horror stuff and, and body modification stuff and everything. Um, so anyway, 
So as they are kind of going through and everything, Anne asks if they can make the grandmother like their mother. And the salesman is like delighted. He's like, yes, of course. Um, and then Anne is just like, then I don't want her. I don't want her to be like my mom. I'd hate her. And then she runs out. And so this is kind of the first inclination that we get of Anne completely resenting her mother for dying, which is such a heady, uh, like rich grief storytelling device and everything that I feel like the episode falters a little bit in, in that regard, which I'll talk about later, but it's a really interesting, interesting kind of avenue to go down. Um, so with Anne outside and George outside consoling her, Karen and Tom just kind of take, take the lead and they're like, yeah, uh, let's make it look like our mother. Um, they agree that they'd want it to look like their mother. And then we get a cut to that. That's another, that's another downside to this is that we don't see anything with George and Anne outside. Like, I wish that there was like an insert shot of, of him consoling Anne, but you know, that's nitpick nitpicking at best here. So then we get a street side shot of an outdoor scene of the grandmother arriving. She walks up to the house and she introduces herself and tells them to give her a name. Uh, she, this is also kind of interesting too, because like they, she rattles off like all of these names that they could give her. And then they're just like, we're, we're going to call you grandma. Like, that's your name. And it's just, it's kind of interesting. Like, I think that there, there are certain things in this episode that can be kind of mined for some interesting, um, I don't know, interesting takes, I think, because them just assigning her the name grandma gives her like, like, that's her purpose. Her purpose is to be a robot that is just going to mold them and take care of them and be in, be present at all of their events and everything. So she doesn't need a like traditional human name. They, they can't give her like a, like they can't christen her with an actual name. They just call her grandma because that's her function. Uh, and she's a robot. It's just like this interesting disconnect there. Um, that makes it interesting later on at the end of the episode as well. But, uh, anyway, I'll get to that later. So she, grandma proves that she's a robot by giving Karen a key and not to, she doesn't prove it. She does this like funny bit where she's like, all right, well, I'm a robot. Here's my key, you know, go ahead and wind me up. Um, and they're like, you don't wind up robots and everything. It's very silly. It's very fun. Um, and then, Anne though is off in the distance. Did I say that she gave the she gave she gave the key to Karen, not Anne. I don't remember if I said Anne or not. But anyway, Anne is kind of off in the distance at the doorway. She's very weary. She's very like her body language is incredibly like standoffish and hesitant. Um so what uh she actually does, what the grandma actually does to prove that she's a robot is she plays their words back to them through her hand, which I thought that was interesting, but I think that the payoff at the end just kind of doesn't work for me, which I'll get to at the end, obviously. Um, but when she gets to Anne, Anne backs away. She's very, not necessarily threatened by her. She's just disinterested in her and doesn't, doesn't want to, uh, doesn't want to be a part of, of what's going on. So then, uh, then like grandma does this whole thing with the kite because, uh, Tom has a kite at the kite that has no string. So she just creates string and, uh, from the palm of her hand to fly it. Um, and then that kind of looks like it's winning Anne over a little bit, but she's still a little reluctant. 
Um, and then grandma produces marbles in her hand and hands them to Tom, which is all that's well and good. And that's interesting and everything, but it also feels like a little bit too far in terms of like the science fiction of it, because they just materialize in her hand. It's just kind of, I don't know that again, nitpicking, but, uh, the act ends with Anne going back inside the house, still reticent, um, and not willing to kind of participate in the, uh, the, the arrival of the grandmother. Uh, when we come back, Tom runs inside the house and he's, he's like all excited. He's like, grandma, there's a new car in the driveway. Did we get a new car? And, uh, she's like, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe George will take, take us all for a ride later. And I think I want to point this out because I think that this is an interesting, um, development in the episode because my take on that is that it seems to imply that George, is now able to afford a new car now that grandma is taking care of the children. And so he is able to devote more time to work and to, um, and, and to providing for the family on a monetary basis, um, which is all well and good for the sixties, you know, Americana thing. So I can't fault it too much, but it does feel like it's just missing a little bit there. Like it feels like it feels a little like off, like, okay, so the excitement about them getting a new car, the implication of that is that, you know, George is not able to really take an interest in his family because he's working so hard to get like a new car and everything. Again, that kind of comes down to us not getting a lot with George, um, as a character throughout the episode, which is a bummer. It is, it is really a bummer. It, it's just, it's dissatisfying to me. So, um, he, uh, George kind of talks to grandma and says that Anne's still inside. Uh, she didn't want to play today. I, I don't know if, I don't know if, I don't know if George says that to him or George says that to grandma or grandma says that to George. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's obviously, it's obvious that time has passed and, uh, George kind of just tells the grandma like, Hey, you've been really good to them. Um, and good for us and everything. And I'm sorry that Anne is still so, uh, so hostile and everything. And she just kind of calms his nerves and says, Hey, don't worry about Anne. She's going to come around. And she goes into this pretty beautiful, like monologue where she says that, uh, in order to properly care for the children, she needs to reach into their hearts. They, she needs to, uh, reach into their hearts and she says she's going to have to do that with Anne and it's going to be difficult, difficult, but it's going to come in its own time. So I do like that as far as the compassion that the grandmother has. Um, and I also wish that this episode, if it was going that route of, you know, imbuing a robot with human characteristics and empathy and everything, I wish it would have gone full bore into that. Uh, we get a little bit of that, but it's also a little bit, a little bit groggy, I guess would be the word that I would describe it as because it just doesn't really, doesn't really compute, um, with the, with the main, with the main thesis statement of the episode, which is still kind of a little bit up in the air. But anyway, Anne then comes downstairs and George asks if she wants to go for a ride. Um, but Anne is still just very hostile. She, she wants to stay home and she tells, she just flat out tells the grandmother like, Hey, I don't want you here. I never wanted you here. It was them, father and Tom and, and Karen. They wanted you, but I didn't. They needed you, but I never needed you. Like this, 
this scene, <laughs> like that line, the way that she reads that line, uh, that performance in that scene um, is phenomenal. I think like it is so, it is so um, like Veronica Cartwright's performance in that scene is so just hostile. Uh, it is so, so hostile. It is seething with this hatred like when like when she kind of like squints her eyes and this like like she stares daggers into the grandma saying like they wanted you but i didn't i did they needed you but i never needed you it's just it is so vitriolic that i i really really liked that uh that bit of performance from uh veronica cartwright um and she goes on to say that her father is making is playing make believe. Uh everyone's pretending that you're real but you're just a machine. And I love that. I love that kind of science fiction. I really do. Um because it is playing into this whole idea of like can robots, can uh, artificial intelligence, can robots, can technology achieve humanity. And I love that type of science fiction and if this episode had really dove into that in a in a deeper way, I would have just been gobsmacked by the episode. But as it is, it just doesn't really work all that well um, for me. But uh, anyway, Grandma says that oh, I she can love and that she does love you. Like she does love Anne. She does love her. Um, and Anne, this is just like this scene is is maybe the standout scene of the entire episode, but. Anne says that her mother, like, that's the same thing that her mother told her. And she lied. She didn't, she didn't love me. Um, and so that's telling us that Anne blames her mother for dying and sees it as a betrayal, which is again, some very, very heavy character characterization, very heavy themes at play here. And, um, she kind of ends this scene with, with, uh, saying like, you're like her and I hate her and I hate you. And then she runs out and she runs away. And then George kind of comes up and he's just not, not, not necessarily nonchalantly, uh, nonchalant about it, but he just says like, oh, she's run away before I'm, I'll go get her. Um, and, uh, then the grandma says like, no, I'll, uh, I'll go find her. Uh, there's no place to go except to me. Um, and then, so she goes out to get her and I didn't, I didn't look into where this was shot or I'm sure it was like on, uh, the back lot or whatever, but there's a really, it looks really good. It looks like a nice, like quiet, small town Americana kind of thing, uh, kind of, kind of display, but, uh, they're going through like this town square area. Um, and the grandma reaches or, or catches up with Anne and just asks why she hates her. Um, and Anne's like, because you're just like her, you're just like your mother. And so, uh, and then just kind of levels with her and says like, Hey, um, my mother left, like I, she left me here and I can, I hate her for it. Um, or she doesn't say she hates her for it because the grandma then getting into Anne's heart says like, why do you hate her? Why do you hate your mother? Um, and Anne just reiterates like, because she left me, she left me. Um, and, uh, she's, she blames her mother for dying. She says that, uh, she was sick and she was dying and she let herself die. Um, and that's when she walks into the street and this, this whole segment just felt a little bit, a little bit, 
like like it's i kind of wish it was done a little bit better or set up a little bit better because she's walking in the street and in this moment i i thought that it was going to go into a more negative or more downer ending because i was really hoping that the grandma wasn't going to die saving Anne, and i'm happy that i'm happy i'm happy that we got somewhat of a happy ending i just wish that it was a little bit better <laughs> but at this moment i was still hoping that it would be a happy ending uh so as the chaos ensues the the van is coming coming down the street george yells for ann to look out and grandma just runs into the street and pushes her <laughs> pushes ann out of the way which looks so, like a little bit severe like she just like i think ann falls in the street um, but suffice it to say, it's fine. But, uh, grandma has su successfully protected Anne, um, but she then gets hit by the van and George rushes to Anne, um, and, and makes her, makes sure she's, makes sure she's okay. And then Tom and Karen run up and, and they kind of look on the street, uh, to see if the grandmother is, you know, alive. Um, and that's when, uh, she comes, kind of comes back to life and she gets up and then she goes up to Anne and here's where it doesn't really work for me. And it also didn't work for Mark Sacree in the, in the commentary track, but she goes up to Anne as she is being held by George and she cups her hand near her, near Anne's ears, uh, and, and plays audio of her words back to her. And the words that she chooses <laughs> is uh the recording of Anne saying you're just old junk get away get away old junk old junk and like i can't grasp the purpose of that like it feels so weirdly manipulative for a like it doesn't seem like a natural character turn for the grandmother to basically uh, to for her to say outright to to her, for her to go ahead and say this is my goal i need to reach ann's heart i need to get into her heart i need to that's how she's i'm going to get her to bond with me and love me is i'm going to get into her heart um so that's all well and good and then to have the way that she gets into her heart is basically uh basically pushing her out of the way from nearly getting killed and then playing back uh, playing back audio of Anne saying dis saying nasty things to Grandma, it just feels very like I said manipulative because it's like it, it, the implication is is <laughs> the implication is just like okay, well I saved your life and look at look look how much of a jerk you were to me, uh, so now you need to kind of change your tune. It just seems like again manipulative. I d I don't like it. Um, and then. Even going deeper into that, uh, or or kind of an extension of that, is that Anne looks up and sees that Grandma is alive, and then hugs her. And then here's again this I don't I don't get I don't uh, I don't like. But Anne says uh, Anne says you're alive, so so you're not like Mother. Like like okay, that's that's a little weird for a story about you know kids dealing with grief and kids 
dealing with the loss of their mother is like, okay, well now, now I'm going to bond with this robot grandmother because she's proven that she can be hit by a van and not die. So it's fine because now, now I can love her because it's not like my mother who died. I I just, that feels just so wrong. And it feels like a miscalculation in terms of the tone and the, in the story. But anyway, uh, Anne hugs her. And then here again is where we get some light stuff with George that just doesn't feel like it is, it feels out of place. It feels unfulfilled. It feels, feels unfinished here because grandma like looks at George and says, Oh yeah, your mother died when you were young too. And he says, yeah. And, um, then she just kind of says to the family, like, yeah, my job is to live forever. And then she takes, she takes them home and she's like, Oh, last one, last one home is a rotten egg or whatever. And then George and Tom just run to catch up and everything. And it's, it's very bright and sunny and everything, but it just feels really, uh, it just feels really unnatural or really like it, it doesn't have a cohesive end for me. Um, and then we get the surprise for me, at least, um, that we get an in episode voiceover played over a montage by Rod Serling, which I will play right now. Dad, are we going to be all mates? Not on your tin type. <laughs> As of this moment, the wonderful electric grandmother moved into the lives of children and father. She became integral and important. She became of the essence. As of this moment, they would never see lightning, never hear poetry read, never listen to foreign tongues without thinking of her. Everything they would ever see, hear, taste, feel would remind them of her. She was all life, and all life was wondrous, quick, electrical, like her. Grandma, thank you. So, um, yeah, so anyway... Uh, that, that was interesting. This is the, according to trivia, this is the final time that we will have an in-episode narration from Rod Serling. Everything else from here on out is just opening and closing. Um, so that's interesting. So, uh, I also thought it was kind of unique that, uh, the narration kind of just, uh, bleeds into college age Tom saying grandma. So when he says like, like, uh, everything electrical, like grandma, like grandma is like, cut into Tom saying grandma. But anyway, uh, they're now adults. They, they are about to go off to college, which I know that there was a little bit of, um, I don't know. I saw on like trivia and then Mark Sacree had pointed this out that like, it's weird that they're all three going to college at the same time, but I'm, that doesn't bother me at all. Like it's, it doesn't really factor in for me. But basically what, what doesn't work for me is that this feels like it, this, this ending for her, this ending for grandma is, feels like it is just incongruous with the rest of the story. It doesn't feel like a complete thought with the, um, with, with the rest of the story. So basically since they're going off to college, grandma's leaving. She's going back to facsimile limited. Uh, they don't need her anymore. Uh, so she's either going to raise another family or be deconstructed and her parts redistributed. Like that's so bleak and weird. It doesn't really mesh or, or gel with the rest of the episode when in it, and it also doesn't, it, it seems like a little bit, uh, incongruous in itself in the scene. Like it, it seems to contradict itself a couple times in the scene. So, 
basically, when she says that she uh, might be de- deconstructed or her parts redistributed, she says, or you know, maybe, maybe I'll go to the room of voices where I'll talk, uh, well, I'll spend all my time talking to other robots about what all, what all I've learned. Um, which is really sweet. That's very, again, this is the kind of science fiction that I absolutely love. It is this kind of human element of non-human characters and everything. (laughs) Like it's, it's really satisfying. Um, it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite movies from last year after Yang, Uh, That's an amazing movie about this exact type of story. Um, And then it also reminds me of, again, one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, 2013's Her. Uh, That is an incredible, incredible movie. Um, But so all that reminds me of this. But uh, she, Grandma says that uh, basically she's going to share all that she's learned with the other machines in the room of voices. Um, which is, which is really beautiful and satisfying because she tells, like, she tells, um, she tells the kids like, oh yeah, like, cause they're like, well, you know, we learned from you. It's not that, it's not the other way around. And she's like, oh, nonsense. I've learned everything uh, from you and everything. Um, uh, I've learned so much in, in my time and it's like, oh, that's great. That's, that's nice. That's good. I like that. Um, but then she says, which I feel like this is this is probably the biggest issue that I have with the episode because she says that, you know, someday, uh, someday maybe I'll I'll get to gain the greatest gift of all, life. Um, you know, maybe maybe after three hundred years or so, maybe if I'm good, I'll be able to have my own life, and it feels like it obviously very much feels like like Pinocchio kind of thing or. Uh, you know, it, it just, it just feels, feels like that. Um, <laughs> and it ends on this, this very sentimental moment where the kids are like, you've always been alive to us. And that's, that's a beautiful sentiment to end on. And to be honest, in my first viewing, it's exactly what I wanted. I wanted that kind of just like emotional punch, but the more I thought about it, the more I think about it, it just feels like a disservice to the story because, like we have this the we have this grandmother uh robot who has spent uh however long like i don't know how much how long the time had passed um but she had spent every every day with these children caring for them and everything and her end is that she might be able to be granted a full life when she goes back to the place that created her um, so she might have to wait like 300 years, but she might have an, her own life and everything, or she might just be deconstructed and her parts redistributed to other robots. Like, it's so weird. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. It does not work for me at all. Um, it, so as much as I love the sentimentality of the ending, um, it's not near enough in the greater context of the entire story. And I really feel like the, the story, uh, falters because of that. Um, so then we get the closing narration from Rod Serling. So I'm going to go ahead and play that now. A fable, most assuredly. But who's to say at some distant moment there might be an assembly line producing a gentle product in the form of a grandmother, whose stock and trade is love. Fable, sure. But who's to say? And 
yeah, the ending, it just, it really plays up that sweet and sentimental side of the story, which I can appreciate, I can, I can get behind, but I really think that the episode, uh, ultimately uh, falters by not having, not having a more cohesive ending and not tying in the family experience or tying together as a family unit at the end. Like, I think that that's where it lacks the emotional punch because the entirety of the episode is built around Anne rejecting the idea of the robot as being a, as being a mother or a maternal figure in the household and everything. Um, and then that is resolved. And then we get this weird time jump where it shows that, you know, the kids, the kids love the grandma. Uh, George is indifferent to her, I guess. I don't know. He's off buying cars and stuff. Um, and then it ends on a note of like, okay, well, you know, my job here is done. I'm going to go ahead and, and, uh, and, and move on to the next stage of my, of my life. Even though the entire point of the rest of the episode is that I will never die and I will always be here for you no matter what, but just until you're out of the house and then I'm going to nope back out to facsimile limited. It just, it does not, it does not have a cohesive ending for me. And, that that's ultimately the downfall of the episode is that it's just, it just seems too contradictory to itself. And I would be very curious to know what of this episode was reshot or revised or how they tried to cobble it together. I would love to read the original, uh, treatment, which I know that, uh, Ray Bradbury, um, did write it as, write it out as a story later on. um, but yeah, I don't know. It just, it didn't, it didn't work for me. So overall, I sing the body electric did not work for me as an episode. I like a lot of the concepts it plays with and a lot of the concepts it introduces and explores, but I do not feel like it, it does anything to explore it, uh, with any depth that I, that I can really assign to it. So, um, so overall it just, it didn't work for me. Wasn't a fan of this episode. Uh, as far as trivia for I Sing the Body Electric, um, I've got a few things here. Uh, in 1982, um, there was an hour-long NBC television movie, The Electric Grandma, or The Electric Grandmother, which was also based on the story. Um, and the story was also adapted for radio in 2011 in the Twilight Zone radio dramas uh, that were produced by Falcon Picture Group. Um, and this particular radio drama starred Dee Wallace. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, and then let's see, um, opening shot of the house. You guys already know that. Um, yeah. So, okay, here we go. In 1969, Ray Bradbury rewrote this teleplay as a prose story, uh, that was eventually the version that became the basis for the electric grandmother. So I'd be interested to watch the electric grandmother and read the story. Um, I do have it in one of the short story collections I have on audible. So eventually I'll, I'll read it and, uh, and probably post something on Patreon about it. So anyway, um, so, uh, okay. So, uh, June Vincent was originally cast as aunt Nedra, but the producers were disappointed with the scene. So a reshoot directed by William Claxton replaced, uh, Vincent with Doris Packer. And, uh, oh yeah. And, uh, here's why I had it in my head that Veronica Cartwright was in the birds because another piece of trivia is that in the scene where Veronica Cartwright is standing on the stairs in the family living room behind her lining the stairwell wall are several paintings of birds, which is interesting because at the time she was filming 
uh, not at the time. This was around the same time. I think she was filming Hitchcock's The Birds. So that is my review of I Sing the Body Electric. I review the Ray Bradbury episode. Um, that, that was dumb. Anyway, so uh, let me know what you thought about I Sing the Body Electric. And once again, check out Submitted for Your Approval. Um, at least subscribe to it now. He hasn't posted his newest episode yet, but um, it's coming. And I'm going to be on an episode soon. So uh, go ahead and subscribe to uh, Submitted for Your Approval. And as is usually the case, I am going to end this episode with a brief a uh, review of an episode of science fiction theater. So to bring us into that segment, I'm going to go ahead and play the uh, the um, theme music for uh, science fiction theater. In this week's episode, it's The Long Sleep. Uh, this was Season 2, Episode 2 of Science Fiction Theater. It is available on Daily Motion and YouTube as of this recording. It originally aired on April 13th, 1956, and the plot synopsis, courtesy of IMDb, is, after saving the life of an orangutan by lowering the body temperature, a doctor is asked to do the same to a human child under force. So this episode was directed by Paul Gilfoyle and written by Arthur Weiss with a story by credit by Ivan Torres. And it stars Dick Foran as Dr. Samuel Willard. This is his first of four science fiction theater appearances. And co-starring as John Barton is John Doucette. Uh, this is his third of three science fiction theaters. Uh, and he did appear in one episode of Rod Serling's TV uh, series in 1966, The Loner. And rounding out the cast uh, as Ruth Taney, or Tanny, is Nancy Hale. This was her only episode of science fiction theater, although she did, uh, in addition to that, she had an uncredited role in uh, The War of the Worlds. Um, I think that was 1956, I think. Um, but yeah, so let's get into the episode. <laughs> the pre-show for this, of course, has Truman Bradley uh, giving a demonstration. He shows us a kind of crate of frozen eggs, and then he um, demonstrates dropping a regular non-frozen egg, sees it crack and everything. Then he drops a frozen one, and it does not get destroyed. So he posits from that point that maybe freezing humans may help with treating diseases, which is kind of a leap, but, you know. Um, then he brings us into the episode. And this episode was okay. It was, it was interesting, and I, I've kind of noticed this in the... Uh, last couple of episodes, really, maybe this is a season two thing, but it seems a little bit more thrilling. Like this, this episode, this show seems a little bit more like it's steering more into the thrill factor. So, um, in this episode, this doctor, Dr. Samuel Willard, um, he has, has researched, uh, like hyper, uh, hibernation techniques and, basically going toward like suspended animation. So he has run experiments on um, animals where they lower the body temperature and are able to correct illnesses by having them, you know, basically in a forced hibernation. 
And then it begins with this emergency call that he gets where an orangutan that's very well respected in the community and at the zoo is sick and dying. So they've brought brought the orangutan to Willard to try the hibernation thing because he's going to die anyway. Might as well, you know, try to save him with, you know, this experimental science. Um, that's when we get the kind of exposition that he's done this, done this already with, uh, with different animals and everything, um, which is, uh, he, he's had previous success for that with that, but never with an animal that doesn't already hibernate. So that's kind of the defining, the decide, the, the big factor of this, of this experiment and slight spoiler alert, it worked, but they didn't get much press about it or anything. And like, that's what like his son is, um, asking him why, like there's no press or anything. And, uh, Sam just, just explains that like, well, you know, there's a lot of testing that needs to be done. So this isn't a surefire thing that this is, this is not something that, uh, just because the orangutan survived, it doesn't mean that, you know, every other animal or, or person will survive with this technique. There's a lot of experiments that need to be done. Um, so then he gets a call that he explains to his wife, uh, he's been asked to do the same thing with a gorilla, like a young gorilla. Um, and his wife is like, well, you know, that's, are you sure that that's a good idea? And he's like, oh, I got to try it, I guess. So then he goes back to his lab and then we get the act break with the reveal that it's, it's not a gorilla. It's a child. And this is where the episode gets into kind of a more action-based thing, which I found really interesting is that basically what happened is that this man, John Barton, has essentially kidnapped his dying son from the hospital strictly to take him to Dr. Willard so that he can um, use his experimental hibernation technique to heal the son. Uh, which is a tall order and it is very wild and like it has this sense of desperation to it that is very interesting. And the character of John Barton is, is really unique to me. Uh, John Duchette does a really good job, uh, playing this just desperate father, um, who it's later revealed has done some, done some very questionable moral things, morally questionable things, uh, to coerce Sam's cooperation. Um, and that's, that's really where the kind of drama unfolds is that it seems much more dramatic than, than previous episodes of science fiction theater, which is all based in the science of it. This is more like a, like there's a gun involved, there's kidnapping, there's a bunch of stuff going on. Um, and then the episode just kind of just, is okay after that. Um, because, uh, like the kid's life is hanging in the balance and there's a lot of different moving pieces and then they do the science and everything. I'm not going to say whether or not it's successful or anything, but there's like elements to it that feels like really good. Like a good development is like, there's a, there's a bit of action that's done that causes a device in the lab to, uh, potentially be broken. And that comes into play in a, in a decent way, but it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't really work all that well. Like it doesn't pay off all that well. Um, but regardless of that, um, the overall payoff and everything just kind of plays into the interesting sense of despair and hopelessness that like is 
is is uh, prominent throughout the entire episode. Um, but the ultimate payoff doesn't really doesn't really pay off on that despair and hopelessness. Like it doesn't really have like a a good kind of wraparound ending. It just kind of ends in a way that seems pretty expected, I guess. So I'll say I'll that's all I'll say uh, for fear of spoilers and everything. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So I mean uh oh god the long sleep that's the episode called uh that's the episode's title um it's fine it it was fine um i'm curious if the series is going to continue uh going into that whole um going into really really going into the kind of action oriented stuff uh that is that has been kind of prevalent in the last couple of episodes so i'm curious if that's going to be a normal take for the rest of the series uh because this is only a two season series so i don't know we'll see um but as far as trivia is concerned there's one piece of trivia that i found on imdb that i'm just going to read verbatim it says in the opening the host says that hibernating bears have a body temperature between 40 and 57 degrees and they will not respond even if used as a pincushion. black bears do not truly hibernate though uh although their deep sleep uh torpor resembles hibernation their torpor uh, body temperature is about 80 degrees and if you poke a torpid bear with a stick it will wake up instantly so yeah if you are watching this episode um and have any ideas if you encounter a black bear do not do anything of the sort um because uh you might uh be viciously mauled to death so um yeah that's your that's your piece of advice from Anthology, the Anthology podcast presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. So, okay. Anyway, that will do it for this episode of Anthology. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you thought about uh, about I Sing the Body Electric, about Ray Bradbury as a writer, about this episode of Science Fiction Theater. Um, basically, you know, let me know what you think. Um, you can find me the usual places. Uh, you can also email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Also, uh, consider checking out Patreon for a lot of uh, content. Again, I have that special curated tier for $4 uh, where you get just science fiction related stuff, um, which includes several commentary tracks that are available to $5 uh, Patreon supporters. So for $4 a month, you get science fiction stuff that I do on Patreon, which I have a lot of fun stuff planned that I'm going to get to eventually, but there's plenty of stuff up there for you guys to check out. So again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, yeah, we are coming up to the end of season three of the twilight zone. Uh, next time on the podcast, which is the 100th main episode of anthology. I'm very excited about that. Uh, I'm going to be reviewing, uh, uh, Cavender is coming, which is the penultimate episode of season three of the Twilight Zone. And I am going to also review uh, an episode of Science Fiction Theater, season two, episode three, titled Who Is This Man? Uh, so looking forward to that. I'm going to start playing myself out once again. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, and yeah, I'll be back next time with Cavender is coming and Who Is This Man? Um, until then, uh, consider checking out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and my other shows, obsessive viewer podcast and tower junkies, uh, a Stephen King podcast. So until next time, thank you guys for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. And now enjoy this short clip from our Patreon exclusive RSS feed 
for the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV book and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. And now it's in this episode of The Last of Us. And all three of those examples, and I know it's also been used in Shutter Island and a, and a bunch of other stuff, but those are the three that I point out because it is a beautiful piece of, of, of music that's used incredibly well in these three instances. And now I have a third thing. So Arrival is a heartbreaking episode, a heartbreaking movie, and it is incredibly thought-provoking. It's profound. It's incredible. And the use of this song in that in that in that movie is one of my favorite like needle drops and or favorite pieces of music in movies in general. And then Castle Rock has the episode The Queen that is an incredibly beautiful episode that's kind of similar to this, honestly. It's about the history of these two characters and their relationship as it goes throughout the years and everything. And here we have The Last of Us having the same kind of thing. This is the part where it just it sends chills down my mind I, or down my spine. I Like, that is just so beautiful. It's stunning. Um, but... Now I just have a third example that I love of this music played in media, and all three are just incredibly profound pieces of art. So I'm very, very happy that uh, that Max Richter keeps getting residuals for this stuff. So, uh, so yeah. So I'm gonna fade this down and everything, but I, I just I adore this piece of music, and I think that it is incredibly heartfelt and beautiful. And it is, it is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And I was just so... This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.